The Energy Gang is brought to you by C-Power Energy Management. C-Power provides custom demand-side energy management solutions that help keep you green and earn revenue in the process. C-Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs. And if you think about it, the greenest energy is probably the energy you don't use. C-Power also offers integrated solutions like storage plus demand response and other tools to help you achieve your green energy goals and monetize your energy assets. C-Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue through energy curtailment, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. Find out more about C-Power's demand-side energy management solutions at cpowerenergymanagement.com. Hey everyone, Stephen here. Being an editor and a podcast producer does come with its perks. One of them is giving you, our listeners, a good deal, and I've got a really good deal for you. How about 20% off your registration to our Solar Summit Mexico in Mexico City on February 13th and 14th? Mexico is the hottest Latin American solar market right now, with prices coming in way below the average price of fossil fuels. So we're going to match those prices by giving you, our podcast listeners, 20% off registration. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code podcast at checkout. You can also follow the link in the show notes. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events and use the promo code podcast at checkout. And let's meet up in Mexico City to talk solar at GTM's Solar Summit Mexico. Hope to see you there. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. The next sector ripe for reinvention? Regional air travel. Okay, so maybe that doesn't have the sexiest ring to it, but electric airplanes could help us completely make over the localized airline industry, which could change the way we move around the country. We'll talk with the CEO of Zunum Aero, an electric plane startup backed by Boeing and JetBlue Ventures. Then, a look at the latest global figures on renewables investment. China has another explosive year. America has an anemic one. And costs? Well, they keep a-droppin'. My two fine co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, join me from Washington, D.C. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hello. I noticed that GTM did not win a fake news award, Stephen. We tried. We we tried very hard, but we are apparently not on the president's radar like we thought. <laughs> Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hey, how's it going? Excellent. So if I wanted to come see both of you right now, I could take a plane from Logan Airport here in Boston to Reagan Airport in Arlington, Virginia for about 99 bucks. But if I wanted to fly from like Manchester, New Hampshire to Lynchburg, Virginia, well, that's going to cost me like a thousand bucks and take 24 hours, at least according to my quick search on kayak before we started the show. But it would be totally worth it because you'd be visiting my mom. (laughs) I I hope I have a bed there with my name on it. (laughs) Of course. Why such limited choice? Well, that's because a handful of airlines dominate the market, and they have little interest in these smaller regional markets. Fuel and maintenance costs make it way too expensive. But can electric airplanes change all that? If we use batteries to cut down on fuel costs, or eventually eliminate jet fuel altogether at some point, a whole new market for regional air travel could blossom once again. Our guest, Ashish Kumar, has co-founded a company that wants to make electric airplanes a reality and perhaps remake the way we get around this country. Ashish is the CEO of Zunum Aero, a company founded in 2013 in Washington State. 
It is designing a battery-powered airplane, a hybrid airplane, and it has venture backing from JetBlue and Boeing, and Ashish has held leadership positions in the tech industry at Dell, Google, and Microsoft. He joins us today from the Seattle region. Ashish Kumar, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much, Stephen. Great to be here. So how does a uh, global sales and marketing exec at Microsoft and Google start designing an electric airplane? Well, uh, I think you'd be glad to know I'm, I'm, I have nothing to do with the design. <laughs> My role in the company is, uh, is purely commercial. Uh, I do happen to have a PhD in uh, mechanical and aerospace engineering. And I was a professor um, at Brown for a while before uh, switching fields uh, uh, um, and going to high tech and going to, uh, you know, growth and business building, uh, sales and marketing. So, so I do tend to be very comfortable with technology industries of all varieties, but, uh, you know, no, I'm not designing the plane. That's, uh, we've got, uh, we've got a very deep bench, bench of engineers that are doing that. So tell us about the design itself, the propulsion design, the aircraft design. You aren't planning on getting a commercial aircraft off the ground until about 2022, if I'm, if I'm correct. So where are you at in the design? Um, the well, uh, the design of the the aircraft has gone through uh, four cycles, right? We've been at this since 2013, and uh, one of the um, uh, one of the processes we went through is um, that in aviation, um, um, aviation is really a commodity industry that's driven by the cost per passenger mile of the aircraft, and in that way, it's not that dissimilar from electric power generation, where uh, the cost per kilowatt sort of is what drives which technology is going to lead um, in, in the generation game. And so when you look at aviation and the, uh, uh, um, uh, the, the markets are, uh, are shaped by the propulsion itself, right? So the propulsion drives the aircraft and uh, propulsion through its economics drives the air system. Right. And um, kind of like with electric power generation, you have to be careful when you look at uh, what's in place, like in the case of, uh, you know, the, the utilities and transmission lines were shaped by highly scale driven technologies, just as the air system we have today is shaped by gas turbines over the past 70 years that similarly are scale driven technologies. They like to be large and to be competitive, you have to go large. Right, which is what's happened uh, to the air systems, uh, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. So when you get a change in propulsion, you kind of uh, cannot assume that the same uh, platforms will win or the air system will be the same because the, the new technology will give rise to something that uh, uh, that is in its own shape, which is kind of what you see happening with solar and wind in, uh, in power generation. So uh, one of the exercises we did was actually to try and understand how this new propulsion is going to shape the air system, what type of platforms are going to win in this new environment, and therefore, uh, you know, what's the right entry point. And so the 2022 aircraft, which we, we believe is, is the right entry point from a technology maturity and also how this market will develop standpoint is, is, is gone through four evolutions. <laughs> um, um, it's, it's hardened to the extent that our propulsion teams are essentially off running on uh, a megawatt uh, um, class power plant to power this aircraft. And so that sort of um, um, you know, we, we, uh, the, the, the design is hardened to that point that the power levels are set, uh, the, the weights are locked, uh, the performance is locked. And, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, of course, more work needs to be done, but um, we, we, we have a very hardened design. So when I was in college, I, uh, 
I used to fly gliders and we'd have to find thermals to like, you know, keep ourselves in the air longer. So that was the first thing I pictured when Stephen said, hey, let's talk about electric aircraft. But obviously, after looking at our website, you guys are doing extraordinary work and far more sophisticated. I guess I'm curious, you know, when you think about flying, uh, you know, a single engine plane and then a dual engine plane, you know, part of what you think about is, you know, redundancy, right? So how do you do that in an electric plane? Are you creating two completely separate systems so that if one fails, the other one keeps running? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the thing to keep in mind is that uh, redundancy in electrical systems is a lot cheaper than uh, redundancy in me- mechanical or hyd- hydraulic systems, right? Because all you're talking about is conductors and switches, right? So um, uh, we talk about our aircraft as being safer for the same uh, price point with the conventional because we can actually give you more. Um, in terms of, uh, but the redundancy we are driving is essentially as you described it, and it's the analog of what happens in a twin, twin engine aircraft where you will have, um, the power plants on each side are, and the, the fuel system feeding the power plant and the controls are completely redundant. So if you lose one, you still have the other side. So, so you mimic that in the electrical system uh, for our twin engine aircraft that the left and right sides are are independent and if should you lose portions of each side you can feed uh the left from the right uh let's say from the batteries right and uh, and even boost uh, to recover yourself which are the type of things that you actually could not do with a conventional today and then how does weight work right so like when you think about a gasoline powered or in this case you know aircraft fuel kerosene powered plane um you know you think that each incremental passenger that adds to the weight of the airplane would, you know, like cost more in fuel, but it feels like it's more asymptotic. I guess, like, is that the case for the electric planes? Is it, or is it more linear where every pound actually requires more electricity to carry a thousand miles? Well, it's, 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 it's the, the arrow and the weight equation is actually identical, right? Because we are not changing the, uh, there, you know, we still have to deal with the same, uh, same basic aerodynamics. And uh, all we are doing is changing the power plant that's behind the fan, right? So, um, um, the, the flight surfaces in our aircraft and what they're dealing with are basically what you would have in a, in a conventional aircraft. But what's, uh, powering the, uh, the fan is, is what's different. Yeah, that was going to be part of my question. Um, I had talked to Bertrand Picard, who uh, designed Solar Impulse, the solar airplane uh, that flew around the world. And he spoke to the need for deep energy efficiency by using advanced materials and other efficiency, other efficiency tools to try to make it lighter. Does that, I'm not a physicist, but does that at all play into the way you're designing your plane as well? No, absolutely it does. So, um, the, uh, you know, there is the more conventional efficiencies we go for, which have to do with, um, a, you know, the weight of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the airframe, right? The airframe materials are using composites. What composites are you using? What's the cost and weight of those? Um, uh, the aerodynamics, uh, obviously it, it, there is a reason our, our fans are where they are is, uh, because we, we get very high quality flow over most surfaces of the aircraft and that g- gives us, uh, 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 you know, greater efficiency, right? So that's, uh, you know, efficiency is a focus for us across the board. Um, but the, the key here is really, um, you know, the kilowatt per kilogram, right? Is what is the, the, the weight 
of the power plant. And uh, as you look at ground electric vehicles and, and uh, putting that technology into the air, um, uh, you know, we have to get to densities that are, uh, you know, a factor of three to a factor of five higher uh, from, you know, on the, on the key, com- uh, key components than, than you would in, in a vehicle on the ground. And that's sort of one of the challenges and, uh, and is why we are leaning very heavily to talent drawn from, um, aerospace, uh, electricals because they have to hit, they have a history of doing that for, uh, you know, the airliners you see in the skies today, uh, that the electric motors on board, the, the power electronics on board are, uh, you know, almost an order of magnitude lighter, um, uh, than, uh, what you'd see on the road today. And then help me with, um, sort of the distance that you're looking at traveling. So it's basically, I would assume really about how much fuel, for lack of a better word, that you want to um, that you want to carry. Um, and so it sounds like you guys are aiming for a thousand miles as your range. Yeah, uh, I think the, uh, the, the 2022 aircraft, uh, will have a hybrid range of 700 miles at entry. And, um, we, uh, the ranges we pick are actually very carefully, uh, uh, determined because we want to stay in, in this regime where the economics are disruptive. Uh, you know, um, if you go for longer range aircraft, you know, the traditional design point for a single aisle is 3,500 nautical miles, or almost 4,000 miles. And uh, to electrify that, you would get uh, a really a parallel hybrid um, uh, type configuration that will give you sort of in the teens uh, in terms of uh, operating cost improvements. Um, but uh, so we don't want to be in that regime. We want to be in the regime where you uh, you get um, uh, you have series hybrids, two electric uh, architectures being the logical ones because there then you can get to you know for instance for our twelve uh, seat aircraft we are talking about sixty to eighty percent reduction in operating cost over the current where um, uh, you know you cannot ignore that platform that uh, you know it would be uh, very very hard for conventional aircraft to fly against uh, that platform and then you know we the scale up we have planned which is to like a fifty seat aircraft with a thousand mile range or you know by 2035 1500 mile ranges those ranges are really uh, we define them as you know the ranges of economic dis- disruption where uh, conventional will not be able to fly right and so 1500 miles is all of short haul uh, air transport thousand uh, uh, miles is basically 95 percent of all the long distance trips we do in the u.s so these are very very significant uh, a very significant fraction of of the of the travel we do in the country is, is covered would be covered by these platforms and so when you think about you know the competition and i'm just trying to figure out whether we could put numbers around it so if you take your your first aircraft, like what does it cost now to buy one of those um, aircraft from, I don't know, Bombardier or, um, you know, some of the other competitors? What you would buy in that class is e- either a turboprop, um, you know, single or twin engine from like a Textron or uh, Pilatus um, um, or a business jet, right? And so we think uh, the, the price point for the aircraft would be below below uh, significantly below a business jet and um, in the ballpark of um, uh, certainly of a twin engine uh, turboprop right so uh, uh, the proposition we have is from an um, acquisition cost uh, it's a wash um, and uh, but from an operating cost you would get a 60 to 80 percent reduction right uh, down to 
uh, with 12 passengers on board, which is uh, eco- economy seating is eight cents a mile um, in, in business class, business seating with a, a lavatory, you get to 10, 11 cents a mile. And I think it was the Financial Times that noted that uh, the average operating cost for the U.S. fleet today is 11 cents a mile. So these are actually very uh, staggering numbers to achieve that uh, th- those type of costs in an aircraft that small. So what I find interesting, Ashish, is that you're approaching this from a business perspective. But if we look at an environmental perspective where commercial planes make up 2% of carbon emissions, and you think about, well, is there going to be a cost, a global cost on carbon? Um, are we going to do something like have, like how how we do in California with having a loading order where the, the planes that are cleaner get to take off first? Um, you know, how how are you looking at carbon whether or not there's a cost or a policy angle to it as part of the equation when you're when you're thinking about d- developing this business no that's uh, that's a great question and uh, y- you know we are extremely com- uh, committed to green and um, and it is our commitment to green that uh, has us emphasized the economics right i've been in the business world long enough uh, to know that uh, the easiest way to drive sort of a softer goal than a hard uh, uh, dollars and cents is uh, align it, uh, align uh, the the hard goal with the soft goal, right? And uh, you know, uh, uh, an open market will just naturally drive the hard goal, and then you know, it sucks through the soft goal you wanted to achieve, right? So that's one of the reasons we focus ourselves on um, the operating costs uh, because this is a commodity industry, and if we can come in with disruptive economics. Um, the green platform will come in and dominate, not because it's green, but because the economics are advantaged, right? And so that's sort of where we, where we start from. Not all of the electric aircraft uh, you see up in the skies uh, are actually greener, right? Which is similar to the situation on the ground, which is not all electric cars are, you know, uh, greener than their more efficient or smaller counterparts, right? So uh, well, our focus is very much cost leadership, which translates to uh, efficiency leadership and therefore, you know, in the in the neighborhood of uh, 60 to 100 percent lower well to wake emissions, right? Uh, uh, for for uh, for a for a per mile, uh, so a very very dramatic reduction. I'm really compelled by the consequences for um, our our transportation systems and how we get around regionally. It, it would seem to me that your competitors are not just conventional propulsion systems, but also autonomous vehicles and these vertical takeoff and landing transportation technologies. Like we're entering this really, really incredible era of transportation innovation. And so it seems like you're kind of fit, you fit into that competitive landscape. Yeah, no, that's right. And so the the way we talk about it is that, hey, uh, you know, everybody now knows what new mobility is, right? It's the stuff that's happening on the ground that's driven by uh, you know, sharing and autonomy and electrification and increasingly intermodal connectivity. And our view is uh, those same four drivers are going to uh, extend this uh, this uh, uh, this thing to 1500 mile ranges, right, by 2035. That uh, uh, urban uh, extending to short haul transportation is going to be reshaped with ground and um, uh, and uh, vehicles on the ground and vehicles in the air working together. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there's a chart we show, uh, which, which, um, uh, <laughs> when we go to conferences around sort of the door to door time and cost impact and, the uh, you know, it's actually for, uh, San Francisco going down to LA 
And uh, uh, the, the four modes we show is one is obviously uh, hybrid regional air, right? So uh, a ground electric connecting to a hybrid electric uh, and then a ground electric, right? That's your door-to-door journey. The other one is uh, California high-speed rail. Uh, the third one is uh, conventional air connecting to one of these urban vertical takeoff vehicles. And the fourth one is, uh, you know, you sit in the back of, of, of your electric car and watch a movie, right? Uh, which is like a five hour, 15 minute journey on the highway. So yeah, we, uh, we aggressively design for and, uh, uh, um, uh, are designing for the, this future competitive landscape, uh, for, uh, on transport mode that, as you said, right, is, is, is going to be very, very different. It's actually a very exciting time, uh, in transport, a uh, transport in general. So why do companies like Boeing and JetBlue show interest in this space? Well, um, the, uh, well I think JetBlue is very, very direct about it. Uh, you know, their view is that um, uh, regional uh, transport is ripe for a transformation, right? And um, their interest is um, they, that they want to be, um, uh, the, to have a seat at the table, even though if you look at U.S. carriers, JetBlue is one of the least, uh, um, uh, you know, in the, the short haul trips are, you know, amongst the least of their mix, right? So they aren't actually as exposed to uh, changes in short haul uh, travel patterns as some of the other carriers are. But, uh, you know, JetBlue wants to be at the, at the front end of, of change in the space. Boeing, uh, uh, obviously, uh, last year was, uh, y- you know, um, the hundredth uh, year of uh, foundation uh, since the found, uh, founding of Boeing, right? And I think there has been a sense of Boeing o- over the last uh, uh, last couple of years that uh, um, that the next hundred years of Boeing are going to look very different from the last hundred years, right? And, uh, and there's, uh, if you look at the range of things Boeing has gotten involved in, uh, just um, you know, a couple of days ago they announced um, vertical takeoff electric cargo drone. The unveiled uh, hypersonic uh, SR-72, and then they un- unveiled uh, autonomous uh, 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 aircraft that can land on on uh, aircraft carriers. Right, so you know, right there, you see a sense that uh, they certainly believe that the next hundred years is not what brought them right to um, uh, to 20, um, 2016, 2017. Well, there's certainly a lot to get excited about here. I'd like to taken a sobering look at the potential as well. Um, what are some of the biggest market and technical limitations that you face as a company that could prevent you from bringing a commercial aircraft to market? Uh, so I would assume, you know, there are battery limitations, there are weight and design limitations. Um, I'm sure there are sort of re- a lot of regulatory limitations. What are the big things that you worry about most? The thing we worry about the most actually is just the the, the funding, right? <laughs> as, as any uh, you know, self-respecting, uh, especially for, for a hardware and our aviation hardware startup, right? Uh, the the uh, raising money is non-trivial. Um, there aren't any established patterns for doing this. So, you know, just get to put that to the side. That is, uh, you know, actually the, our, our greatest limitation. Um, the, uh, as you look at, um, uh, the other areas, um, batteries, our view is, uh, based on what, um, uh, you know, ground electric vehicles, but also grid storage is due to deliver, uh, between now and the late 2030s, uh, the range of chemistries in the pipeline and the uh, performance they're achieving actually is, uh, is running about uh, five years, uh, or more ahead of what, um, aviation can do, uh, for conventional takeoff aircraft. 
I, I think the answer is quite different if you do vertical takeoff where your, uh, um, uh, you know, power requirements are much steeper, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, if you're doing all electric aircraft, but certainly for um, um, conventional takeoff, hybrid aircraft, uh, you know, we are five years behind batteries today. And as we forecast uh, 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 what where batteries are likely to be in 2020 to 2030, uh, you know, we show uh, them supporting aircraft that fly 2,000 miles. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, the industry as a whole is not there from a standpoint of electric machines and uh, the power electronics and uh, the overall power system. Uh, in terms of the, the rest of the system, uh, you know, this is around uh, how do you stage your your the, the technology package on the aircraft, right? So the technology package on the 2022 aircraft, we stage very carefully, right? So our technical leaders will say that these are TRL-9 technologies, which is in aviation lingo means uh, stuff that's already flying. Right. So it doesn't have risk from a technical standpoint. Uh, uh, it's not an R&D risk. It's a development risk because, you know, and, you know, we are increasing power levels. Um, the, 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 the greatest uh, challenge we have is that, uh, you know, today you would get uh, megawatt uh, level power on aircraft in the skies, but that's typically in much larger aircraft. And here we are generating the, the same amount of electricity and, and, and you know, and, and something that's, um, you know, a fifth the size. And therefore, uh, things like to- managing uh, the, the heat you're generating and um, uh, emitting it or ideally reusing it or using it to generate power is, is sort of, the, you know, the harder problems, right, which are more integration issues. Um, the, the, the other area is obviously regulation. And, there, um, uh, you know, we are very uh, uh, grateful to the U.S. Congress for um, the Small Aircraft Revitalization Act of 2013, which um, uh, uh, mandate, mandated the FAA to uh, dramatically simplify the certification processes for this class of aircraft. It's known as uh, Part 23. And uh, the new uh, regulations went into effect uh, last year. And there is one of the uh, one of the sentences in the regulation is really a shift to uh, industry consensus standard, whereby uh, regulation is not driven by the base of a regulatory agency, but it's driven by groups of manufacturers that come together. You know where we are is there was an article in uh, a British aerospace uh, uh, magazine in August, which kind of hit the nail on the head. Is that this is one of the first times where uh, regulation is actually ahead of product, um, that the, the full set of standards for certifying an electric aircraft for Part 23 are going to be in place 20, in 2018. And, um, and uh, you know, as you know, if you look at, um, you know, both the in the urban vertical takeoff space as well as uh, the conventional takeoff space, there aren't uh, really, it's not like there is a whole queue of folks ready to certify right now. It, I, you know, I'm curious what you think about the level of optimism in the industry broadly, right? Because ultimately, you know, Boeing is trying to buy Embraer who makes these sort of smaller um, aircraft. Other folks are, you know, sort of making moves as well in this area. I'm just trying to figure out whether people believe that electric aircraft is an inevitability or whether people still believe this is a science project. No, I think, uh, well, I think I would separate a lot of what you see happening with Bombardier and Embraer and Boeing and Airbus is that is actually really sort of, it's still moves that are driven largely by the competitive dynamics of conventional aviation. I I, I don't think there is 
Um, and maybe there is, right? I, I'm, I'm not privy to uh, the business cases for some of these uh, activities. Um, but if you click down and there's a chart I like to uh, uh, show people uh, around sort of, you know, it's a shift in consciousness chart around electric aviation for, you know, over the year 2017, because the reality to your point uh, is that there is a lot of skeptics out there, right? And, you know, kind of like with investing, um, uh, you know, that's a good sign because, if you don't have them, uh, you know, it's very likely you kind of are really late at a party, right? The party's over, everyone's convinced, and then you're showing up, right? So so I think that's very much where we are. If you looked at uh, things in uh, uh, late 2016, there was uh, a report written by um, the National Academies of Engineering, uh, Medicine, and the Sciences for NASA around low carbon propulsion, and they explicitly uh, you know, they proposed a national research agenda uh, around low carbon aviation, and they explicitly suggested deprioritizing the architectures we are looking at, deprioritizing batteries, um, and really focusing only on uh, technologies that are applicable to long haul platforms, right? Um, um, uh, so that's one, you know, that was late 2016. And then, you know, you had um, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, Aerospace America, the, the magazine of the AIAA, um, they, uh, you know, they went and covered the major trends in 2017. And their assessment was uh, 2017 was the turning point year for electric aircraft. So I think we are still at a very early stage where there is, uh, you know, very, very healthy skepticism uh, around these technologies. And, uh, you know, we're going through... Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, which I think is a good thing, right? That this is early, we are early. I think it, it'll be the early uh, early to mid 2020, uh, uh, 2020s where uh, this mode is, would uh, scale up enough to, to start affecting people's lives at scale. And Ashish, I think what you have talked about and the, the example that Stephen told up front about smaller regional airports with smaller cities, those are not towns that the traditional infrastructure, you either have to drive or you have to take a train that is like a Zen train. You have to take war and peace because it's going to take forever. Um, that's like go, when you go south, just forget about it. Just settle in. But if you're if you're using one of these smaller, cleaner airplanes, it's actually more cost effective to travel on. I would think this poses a great opportunity for economic development for some of these small and medium-sized cities in the South and other parts of the United States that really do need more business to come their way. And this could really be a path toward that. Globally, um, you know, this is what's known as a transport gap is between 100 miles out to about 1,000 miles. You know, the only game in town largely is highways, right? And in some parts of the world, those are not good. And where you do have other modes, they are, uh, they are, uh, the economics limit them to high density corridors, right? So that's the high speed rail, hyperloop, or even conventional aircraft. They can only operate on, on routes where you have a demand that's fat enough to support the economics of that very concentrated mode. So as you look at it, uh, the high speed modes today are sort of, drivers of urbanization, right? Because you can't afford to not live uh, along one of those corridors. And so to, to the point you just made is that we think, uh, you know, we, we know just economically that, uh, uh, you know, th this form of hybrid going to electric aviation is the only uh, distributed high-speed mode that there is, right? Uh, in terms of the, the from an emerging technology standpoint, 
and that it's walking into a situation where you've got 13,000 airports in the US and uh, 97% of our air traffic is in just 1% of them. And then you blow it out to a global scale, you have almost 40,000 airports around the world and just uh, a percent or two of those actually have regular commercial service. Uh, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, say flying from Boston to DC is one of the examples, uh, kind of we've shared where, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that is roughly a five plus hour door to door trip. Uh, if you're routing yourself through Logan, especially if you're on the lo- wrong side of town, but if you instead could fly out from one of the many airfields around in the Boston area to the many airfields in the DC area and uh, fly much more like, you know, uh, uh, some of these new breed of carriers like Jet Suite or Surfer are doing where you arrive 15 minutes before the flight and, you know, walk straight to the plane, drop your bags by the plane side, walk on board. Uh, that journey could be, hot in, you know, two hours, three hours, right, down from five hours. So we see, uh, you know, a significant mobility improvement opportunity for city-to-city travel uh, because, in, you know, Forcing uh, a short journey through the infrastructure of a massive hub just is such an over, uh, such a, a tremendous overhead uh, from a time standpoint that it kills the utility of short shorter trips. And then uh, we have this other impact, which is uh, a force towards uh, you know uh, against urbanization that uh, could drive development and also could could allow you know people to live further away or or uh, you know from the cities and still be um, uh, you know members of the global economy. Ashish Kumar is the CEO of Zunum Aero, uh, a company developing electric propulsion system for aviation. Uh, Ashish, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I learned a ton because this is a new area for me, and uh, I suspect we'll be talking about this more and more. Thanks a lot. No, thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Power Energy Management. Here's an energy question for you. What happens when you combine DR with DER? Well, you get a way to save on energy costs, keep the grid healthy, and earn revenue at the same time. Power has partnered with STEM, the national storage experts, to bring you a leading-edge program that integrates demand response with AI-powered energy storage. It lets you curtail your grid energy use with usually little to no disruption day-to-day, not to mention the savings and earnings that can be realized. You're happy, the grid's happy, and your customers are happy. Storage plus DR is just one of the demand-side energy management solutions that CPower provides to customers operating in all of the nation's open energy markets. Find out how you can save, earn, and reach your green energy goals at CPowerEnergyManagement.com. That's CPowerEnergyManagement.com. We are going to turn now from local and regional transportation trends to global renewable energy trends. Let's tease out some of the latest global numbers that have broken over the last week. We've got some new figures from our very own GTM research and from Bloomberg New Energy Finance on trends in China. According to our initial estimates, China installed 52 gigawatts of solar in 2017. 52 gigawatts. That's a crazy number. And BNEF's numbers are close at 53 gigawatts. China's solar investments accounted for half of all the money that went into the solar sector last year. BNEF also put out its global investment numbers in renewables and other clean technologies. China's total grew by a quarter to hit 132.6 billion. Mexico's investment grew by 526%, and Australia grew by 150%. By comparison, America's investments in clean energy grew by 1%. Still a pretty big number at $56.9 billion in total investment, but anemic growth. Catherine, 
Is this vast difference between China and other key countries and America part of a Trump effect? What do you think? I am, I'm not going to trace it completely to Trump, honestly. I think China has always wanted to be number one in this. Remember, they also account for 30% of the global CO2 emissions, and their emissions grew in 2017 by 3.5%. So they need to make some differences. They want to be more competitive. Um, I don't think necessarily it's a Trump effect because the U.S. is still continuing to innovate and continuing to deploy regardless. Um, but certainly China is stepping up to try to be more competitive and to win the uh, war on clean energy. Yeah, I'm a sucker for that kind of framing to tie things back into the news. But it's, you know, stuff that's more nuanced related to how clean tech is being deployed in this country. And obviously, there is a fa- there are falling costs of wind and solar. So that reduces total you know, capital expenditures on renewable energy. And we've seen a major slowdown in smart meter deployments as well. You know, that's a big part of some of the increase in other key markets. And of course, lower VC activity as well. Catherine, your thoughts on those trends? Yeah, I would just say if you go back to the policy differences, and you're talking about the the Trump effect, Irina's report on lowering renewable energy costs attribute those not to policy differences, but to technology improvement, competitive procurement, and experienced project developers who are becoming more active internationally. So it's interesting because while policy can set up the scale uh, that will then lower costs by lowering risk and um, allowing those technologies to compete in the market, Irina is saying that right now policy is not what's driving the cost differences. I don't know that I totally buy that, though. I mean, policy has been so huge for many of these markets. And when we talk about policy, maybe we're not talking about feed-in tariffs, but we are talking about auction systems and this push toward new um, competitive solicitations that are still a product of policy, right? I mean, yeah, they're, they're not like direct subsidies in the same way, but I just feel like this is still a very policy-driven market. I think when you look at China, there's a couple of things that we should talk about. I, I do hate the framing of U.S. versus China. I've always hated the framing of U.S. versus China, and I will continue <laughs> to hate that framing. Um, China has huge energy needs as a society. Their energy growth on an annual basis is so much larger than the energy growth that the U.S. has. In fact, the U.S. until recently was using less oil every year, and we're continuing to use less to the same amount of electricity every year. And so our energy growth is actually quite small. A lot of it actually is the replacement of retiring power plants. Whereas in China, they are scouring the planet to find energy resources to feed their economy. And they're usually having to partner with unsavory characters to be able to get this energy to um, power their country, including Putin, when to get natural gas, because China doesn't have a lot of access to natural gas. And so when you think about these deployments for China, these are the best economic choices 
for China. And yes, it takes policy to get there. China announced that they were going to spend $50 trillion on rebuilding their grid by 2050 last year. And so this fits within that framework. China also is paying extra for this solar. I think they're paying almost $0.08 US per kilowatt hour for the solar, um, which, as we know, is a pretty high price. But I think that it's required to build 50 gigawatts of solar. And so, but I just think that the framing of this is all wrong. The US is perfectly fine using the energy sources that it has access to now, coal, natural gas, etc. So we are actually having to prematurely shut down coal plants, etc., to be able to reduce our carbon emissions, where China is actually trying to um, meet the 100% of their growth in energy needs from clean energy. We say year after year that China is going to slow in its solar market. And we've been talking about a cool-off period for like six or seven years, but it never comes precisely because of some of the factors that you just outlined, Jigger. Will it ever come for a top-down economy that can basically just adjust however it wants and is extremely hungry for energy? You know, GTM Research itself is actually predicting a bit of a slowdown. And I feel like we've kind of revisited this time and time again, and it, 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 China always surprises us. The reason why everyone underestimates the power of clean energy and the power of China is because they underestimate our ability to solve problems, right? This entire industry has not been prescribed by governments. You know, governments provide policy targets, but it's entrepreneurs that have figured out, oh, this mayor is trying to stop me from interconnecting. I'm going to figure out how to work with the city council to unlock the regulations, or this mayor is stopping this. So I'm going to pass a law in the state of California's legislature to overrule that person, as Barry Cinnamon had to do five years ago. Or, you know, this or that. China is importing a ton of U.S. technology to integrate the amount of solar and wind that they have into their grids, right? I think we are always betting against what has not been done last year. And we are betting against entrepreneurs' ability to actually problem solve and figure out how to get there. And yeah, I think you guys should stop doing that. But in general, I think this industry will continue to be built on that, whether it's in the electricity space or in the electric vehicle space or in the electric aircraft space. There are entrepreneurs trying to solve a lot of these apparent problems that you know, turn out that they can solve. Yeah. And while I'm a total uh, sucker for good policy, and I think policy does create the conditions to be able to um, deploy um, to scale and to be able to get innovation out the door. Irina's report also says that conventional wisdom has been a poor guide to estimating the rate of cost reductions. It's underestimated capacity of technology improvements, industrialization of manufacturing and efficiencies of manufacturing, the process innovations by developers and competition in supply chains. There are all these factors that have come to play that have really driven down the cost and allowed innovation to move forward that is unexpected and that that conventional wisdom just did not prepare us for. Well, we've got to get you two off to some meetings. Uh, I know that there's an electric airplane waiting outside both of your offices ready to whisk you away. So we'll tell our listeners something they don't know before we wrap up and get you going. Um, Jigger, what's your story this week? You know, I follow Nate Adams a lot. I think we talked about his new book uh, the other day. He tweeted out um, a picture of a heat pump that he had retrofitted um, in Ohio, I think. And 
uh, you know, a lot of folks are worried about heat pumps because, particularly air source heat pumps where he specializes because they don't really work in um, temperatures below 10 degrees. And we've had this frigid cold that's enveloped the United States. And, you know, he showed that his, his heat pump, even in this frigid cold, where it was 12 degrees outside, you know, could keep the temperature in the house at 65 degrees, which is pretty amazing. Um, and it really shows you where heat pump technology um, has gotten you. And it matters because air source heat pumps are way cheaper to install than geothermal and ground source heat pumps because you don't have to build the big well in the back. Um, and so I'm, I'm really bullish on the fact that these air source heat pump technologies are being able to heat houses in this really cold weather. Look at Nate Adams getting two shout-outs at the end of the show in a row. Uh, his book is really fantastic. I got a copy just the other day, and I read through it, the Home Comfort book. Really loved it. Go check it out. Um, you know, we don't usually promote stuff like this, but it is a fantastic resource. And uh, Nate is there on Twitter, Energy Smart Ohio, and he tweets out cool stuff like that where he, he runs experiments in homes and he gives insights on some of the deep retrofits he's doing at residences. Catherine, what is your story? Yeah. So once you finish reading the home comfort book, you could turn to a report that was just released. Um, it's a climate works project that's called energy unlocked. Uh, Molly Webb runs this and the report is called energy leaders. And it looks at the private sector. What are the corporates doing on energy solutions? And um, a couple of interesting things in the report. One is that the global investment in digital energy, data analytics, connectivity, things like that is 40% higher than that in gas-fired turbines, new gas-fired turbines. And the report also says that while 65% of reported activities are energy efficiency projects, only 23% of the carbon impact is due to energy efficiency. So that's something that needs to be either tracked better or improved upon for energy efficiency. And then, um, funny enough, the most common amount invested in energy efficiency projects is $0. So we have a ways to go on energy efficiency. Well, we have a ways to go in Latin America. This is a burgeoning market in solar, and we are tracking it very closely on GTM research side. And I'm going to do a shameless plug here for the Mexico Solar Summit in February, February 13th and 14th. Um, Mexico is going gangbusters right now. Their auction system is bringing in some of the lowest priced solar in the world. The question is, can these projects actually get built? They're making a lot of assumptions about future cost reductions and uh, financing. So we forecast that the Mexican market is going to have close to 16 gigawatts of cumulative capacity by 2022. And uh, that's the year that Zunum Aero is going to release its its aircraft. Um, could be close to 20 gigawatts. And Mexico right now has the lowest forecast system costs out to 2022 as well. And again, the big question is, is how is this stuff going to get financed? So we're going to be talking about it all at the Mexico Solar Summit in February. Uh, I know it's Valentine's Day. Bring your spouse maybe and celebrate Valentine's Day there in Mexico City. Uh, come say hi to me. I'll be there hosting some panels and podcast listeners get 20% off. You just use the promo code podcast. And when you go to greentechmedia.com slash events, and go to the Mexico Solar Summit, you're going to get 20% off your registration. So that's a pretty good deal. Well, great show this week. 
Catherine and Jigger, always a pleasure. For all of you out there listening, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Go check us out on the podcast app of your choice. Uh, Notice to SoundCloud listeners, um, we are no longer using SoundCloud for our RSS feed. We haven't been for a while, so the episodes have a little bit of a lag to the update. Um, But for everyone else who listens on the RSS feed, everything is just fine. I'm Stephen Lacey with Jiggershaw and Catherine Hamilton. We are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week.